Would you please bow with me in prayer? Our God and our King, humble us by your word. Encourage us by your word. Exalt Christ by your word. Build your church and faith and love by your word. And save sinners by your word. We pray this in the risen Christ Jesus. Amen. It is election season. For most of us, it is a draining time. We hear campaign slogans and bad-mouthing of opponents. We hear constant attack ads. We hear this guy and his administration is trying to ruin the country. Or he is not as conservative as me. Or she is not as progressive as, like this candidate. One interesting about, thing about the political guy, game is that the opponent is always trying to dig up something about the candidate's past. And they want to see if they have any scandal or skeletons in their closet, any moral failures. They want to make sure their opponent doesn't have a squeaky clean image, reputation. Why would they do that? Why would secular officials care about reputation, about morality? Well, they know that even in a secular state, there is an expectation that our governing authorities are to be model citizens. No one knowingly wants to elect a robber or murderer to lead the state or nation. Why? Because there, in all of us, there's a sense that our elected officials ought to embody our values. They are to model upstanding behavior. Not to say that most of us wouldn't want to aspire this, but for sure our leaders are to embody these values. And if they don't, you best believe their opponents are going to find out and broadcast it to the world to make sure they lose votes. Why? Because leaders or officials are meant to model certain values for the country. Leaders are models. All members of the church are to model Christ and to seek to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, all of us. But God has chosen a select few within the church to model the virtue of Christ. They model Christ to the congregation. Well, who are these select few? What is their role? What are they to look like? Well, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we continue our study through the letter, the first letter to Timothy by Paul. In 1 Timothy 3, we'll see the qualifications for the offices of the church, overseers and deacons. The church is to be overseen by Christ-like men and to be served by Christ-like men and women. And observing this, we shall ask the question as to who may be called to serve here in this congregation or somewhere else in another congregation in this capacity. But first, we'll see that the church is overseen by Christ-like men. But first, let's skip down to verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3 before we go to verse 1. It says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, 
But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, why start with these verses? Well, this statement of Paul functions as the thesis statement, if you will, of the whole letter. Everything proceeding from it flows to it, and everything following it flows from it. This statement is sandwiched right in the middle of the letter. He's written about church order in terms of how the church gathering is to look. It's not exhaustive, but it gives us a general picture. And then the rest of the letter is concerning what he is to teach and how he is to oversee. And in this passage, this section here, he gives the reason why he writes this letter. So that, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, a.k.a. the local church, a.k.a. the pillar and foundation of the truth. So these are not fluff things. These are not things just to pass off. No, these things are crucially important. Why? Well, just look at the description Paul gives of the church. The church is the haven of the truth. She has the only message of salvation for the world. She sits under the only words that are eternal, the Bible. So yes, how the church is to function is a matter of great importance. And her, opponent, her importance is only established because of her chief shepherd, her chief elder, her chief pastor, her chief overseer, and her humble deacon, servant. Who is this? He is the mystery of godliness. In verse 16, he says, we confess. That's where we get the word, the, the, the phrase confessional statement or statement of faith. We confess. And what do we confess? the mystery of godliness. And who is the mystery of godliness? It's not a what, but who. Look again at the hymn of verse 16. You have three lines here about Christ and his person, followed by three lines about Christ and his people. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He came in the flesh. This implies his divinity and his humanity. No mere human. Don't describe a human manifested in flesh. He was then shown true by the Spirit of God working through him in his miracles. He was seen and worshipped by angels. His message was proclaimed to the nations. Individuals from all nations will believe in him. And he's at the right hand of the Father in glory. This is the gospel. This is the gospel hymn that he came to the earth, that he lived perfectly sinless, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and now sits at the throne of God. And if you've never trusted in this message, this Jesus, trust in him today. This is the foundation of all that we do as a church Everything we do as a church is to point to him and ought to point to him. 
He is the foundation and pillar of the foundation and pillar of the truth, the church. So now why, why start here? Why start in verses 14 through 16? Because Christ is the foundation for the qualifications of these two offices of the New Testament church. Jesus is the chief overseer and the perfect deacon. And both offices are to display his character. Well, first, we have the overseers. Look at verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace or reproach into a snare of the devil. In the New Testament, you see two different titles for the same office, overseers and elders. The term overseer is where we get the word bishop. The word's origins come from Greek civic leaders, those with management or oversight responsibilities in the government. And the idea of the term for elders is of Hebrew origin, referring to position or standing within the Jewish community. They are two titles for the same office. There technically is no office of the pastor, even though we use that term a lot. But pastoring or shepherding is the function of the elder or overseer. We give the title pastor based on the function of what they do. So we may use the terms elder, overseer, or pastor interchangeably. They're the same thing. Now Paul goes on to say, the saying is trustworthy. Literally, the, the word is faithful. You've noticed that repeated phrase. Saying, etch this on your brain. This is something to remember. Remember this. Anyone who aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, desires literally a good work a noble task, but literally a good work. This is a good thing, although it is extremely challenging. Everybody thinks a, a pastor's job is easy until they become a pastor. They realize it's not easy. It's a tough task, tough work, but it is a good work. Now, that's not to say that people who are in other professions are not serving the Lord. No, that, they are. Every vocation that is a, 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 to God's glory is a service to our God. And this passage is not talking about only those who go into vocational, full-time vocational ministry. Most overseers or elders are not full-time employees of the church. But anyone who desires lay or vocational eldership desires a good thing. It is an important role in the church. But it's not for everyone, though. There are qualifications. Well, first, first one is above reproach. 
Now, above reproach functions as really the fountainhead for the rest of the qualifications. Overall, he's to be above reproach. In other words, his pattern of life is one unstained by scandal and sin. This does not mean sinless. Because that would disqualify all of us. But the overall pattern of his life is to be one unstained by scandal. Now, when you look at these qualifications, I mean, this would be the aspiration of all of us as Christians. But elders, overseers, or pastors are to be examples of this. So what, is, what all does above reproach entail? Well, first, the husband of one wife, or literally one woman man. His life is marked by faithfulness to his wife. As Christ is always faithful to his bride and does not cheat on her, does not leave her, does not abuse her, Christ is dedicated to his bride, the church. He does not leave her for another. So does all this disqualify single men? Not necessarily. Now, the general pattern is that these men are married, but if he is single, he, he must live a life of, uh, must not live a life of sexual immorality. Must be an example in this to the congregation. But for the married man, their life is not marked by marital infidelity, but dedication to the wife of his youth. He is known in the church and outside as one who is a faithful husband to his wife. No marital, uh, sca- marital scandal clouds his witness to the watching world. Next, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, similar qualifications here. He's not to be a stoic, but he is also not emotionally up and down either. either. Pastors or elders deal with hostility, sadness, praise, and blame all the time. He must be even kill, controlled to, to keep sanity. He has to be hospitable, literally a, a friend of strangers. His motto is the same as Olive Garden's, when you're here, you're family. He's welcoming at all times. He opens his home for guests. He's not, a, he's not private and isolated at all times, but friendly and approachable to all. Next, he is able to teach. All elders must be able to teach, knowledgeable of the scriptures, and able to instruct others. The letter of Titus, another pastoral epistle, very similar to First and Second Timothy. Titus 1.9 helps us a little bit with this. When Paul tells Titus, speaking of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must know the word and be able to communicate it effectively, to instruct and to refute error. Instruct and to refute error. This is the primary job of an elder. They lead the church through teaching. It's not through authoritative ruling, but through teaching of the word, biblical teaching of the congregation. You'll notice this is the only skill mentioned in the qualifications. 
All the rest are dealing with character. But there's one skill, and this is the essential skill for the function of the office. Now Paul switches to negatives, the must-nots. He must not be a drunkard. This goes back to self-control. He must be able to control himself with the Spirit's help. And eating and in drinking, gluttony and drunkenness frequently go together in all the Scriptures. He is not violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. So yes, this does speak to physical violence, but not that alone. This speaks to one who is also argumentative and always polemical. You know those types of folks. Always looking for an argument or a fight. That is not to be of an elder. He refutes error when the error is there, sternly but gently. He also does not seek riches. He doesn't seek poverty either, but monetary gain is not the goal of his life and ministry. Monetary gain is the goal of false teachers. And you'll notice that there are many false teachers who are poor. They wouldn't get into that business if that were the case. The overseer, the elder or pastor, is also one who manages his household well. He's a faithful husband and a loving and caring father. And if he's not practicing these things, he can't be an elder. I don't care how good of a preacher or teacher he is. I don't care if he's at every hospital stay of every member. I don't care if he frequently writes cards to all the members. If he fails at this, he is failing at all. He must be faithful to his family before the congregation. Think about this. How many marriages and families have fallen apart because pastors have not prioritized their family? And now Paul closes the qualification list of elders with two warnings, both mentioning the devil here. The potential overseer must not be a a recent convert. Why? He's not spiritually mature yet to lead God's people. His pride will swell, and he will face God's disciplinary judgment, which is severe for prideful men. And God does not tolerate pride, and he will squash it in his people. Most of you know this from experience. Any inkling of pride, he will squash it. And the condemnation of the devil refers to Satan's chief sin of pride. This would be the new convert's condemnation. The cause of the disciplinary rod is pride. And often he brings people along with him and does mighty damage. The last is that the elder be respected by those outside the church. It says literally, a good witness, a good testimony. He is known to God, non-Christians as a man of integrity. He is kind. He pays his bills on time. He is a generous tipper. He doesn't rip people off in business deals, etc. They may vehemently disagree with his beliefs, but they can't deny his life. Why must he be respected? Look, there's another, so that. So that he may not fall into literally the reproach and snare of the devil, the reproach. 
so that Satan will not use outside scandal of a bad reputation to bring a stain on the church. Now, in all of these qualifications, it's, it's quite humbling, especially for those who currently serve as elders, and it should. We can't depend upon ourselves, for we're not sufficient for these things. And it's not us, it is the God who has grace. And some of you, as you read this, maybe you aspire to be an elder or a pastor one day. You teach already, and you care about people. You already shepherd people naturally. Pray about these things. The local church is the hub, uh, training hub of elders, not seminaries. And I say that as one who's taught and currently teaching in a seminary and loves seminaries, but seminaries are not the training ground for pastors and elders. It's the local church. And elders should be seeking out those whom the Lord is raising up to train them. And friend, if, if, if this is you, you, you see these qualifications and you see, feel like the Lord leading you in this direction, don't, be, don't hesitate. Don't be afraid to seek advice and counsel on this. An affirmation. And also, don't think that only those who are elders or pastors are the ones, only ones serving God. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Vocational ministry is not, also not the only option. And not, only, not all godly men have to serve as elders. Serve the Lord in your job and only seek the office if you truly aspire. Do you see the Lord really working in your heart to, to this position? But for all of us, all of us, let us aspire to model the chief pastor, Jesus Christ. Now, that is the office of overseer, elders, pastors, as titles. But there is another office. It's not an overseer's position in that it has authority in the church, but it is a high calling as well. And what is that? The deacon the designated, recognized servants of the church. So the second section is this. The church is served by Christ-like men and women. Look at verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. The wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good, a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word deacon means servant, literally servant. So all of us are called to be deacons in a sense. Whether you're an elder, a regular church member, we're all to be deacons in a sense. But some are called to the office of deacon. And just like we talked about last week, there are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Just because there are roles in the church doesn't mean one is greater than the other. Some men oversee the church, have authority, and some men serve under them. It's not a matter of value, but of order. 
And deacons are highly valued members of the body that serve under the authority of the elders. So he starts off with deacons, likewise. This indicates that the, that the office has similar qualifications, although a different function. You see here the same qualifications of he's not to be a drunkard, not greedy, husband of one wife, a one-woman man, good managers of their household. So there's no need to go over those again. We have already. But here in this section, you see some, some distinctions. First, you see able to teach is not there. Deacons are not called to lead and have authority, so teaching is not needed. They can teach, but it's not essential for the role. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is a great example of a deacon who was a great teacher. But he taught not as a deacon, but as a Christian. In this section of deacons, you'll notice something about the, the deacon's speech and knowledge. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. His speech is to be pure and honest. Again, that should be of all of us. But especially, it especially has to be the case in the officer of the church. When you designate someone to an office, the light shines on them, and they're to be examples for the rest of the group, in this case, the church. Look at verse 9 again. It says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So the deacon must be knowledgeable of the scriptures. He must know and cherish the gospel. Although he's not necessarily a teacher, he is to be well taught. Now in verses 10 through 11, you see something else somewhat distinctive of the deacon qualifications. He must be tested first. Now we don't know. It doesn't say how long they're to be tested, but long enough to observe some of these qualifications, or all of the qualifications. You don't see this little statement in the elder list, but it essentially is implied. You, the fact that you have to have time to observe these qualifications would imply that there must be some type of testing as well. But interesting, you, interestingly, you see in verse 11 a section on women or, or wives. Now, ESV translates it as their wives. It doesn't say their wives, but it says women. But this is likely referring, though, to the wives of deacons who serve alongside them. They deacon, if you will, with him, even though they may not hold the office. They serve with their husbands, therefore they carry the reputation of the office as well. So with that, they're not to be slanderers or gossips, but be self-controlled. They serve alongside their husbands. Now, this is unlike the office of an overseer where wives don't oversee with their husbands, but wives will serve with their husbands in the deacon role, not an office, but under with him. So it is extremely important to note that the deacon office is not an authoritative office. Now, this is a controversial statement in many churches, especially in the South, and some of which you've been a part of. Many churches have been poorly taught on this, and deacons do function in an authoritative role in many churches. But that's not what they are. Bad habits can become a rule after years of negligence and attentiveness to Scripture. 
Often, over the past 150 years or so, throughout the years, a solo pastor, again, already a problem there, a solo pastor, would leave a church and there would be a leadership void. And who would often fill that void? The deacons. And that makes, makes sense. They had to perform a role they weren't called to do, but someone had to. Then what happens? An unbiblical tradition starts. Deacons, biblically, are not overseers. With that said, though, that doesn't mean deacons are second-class citizens or elder wannabes. Now, they are important for the church. As a matter of fact, we see in verse 13 that Christ Jesus cherishes and rewards deacons and highly prizes them. Christ is our chief deacon, if you will, and that he came to serve us in the most important way in dying for our sins. He came to serve, not to be served. And he will one day gird himself and serve us at the heavenly banquet, as we just sang, and it's actually from Luke 12, 37. Now, all this talk about deacons and that they are servants is, is still kind of vague. What do deacons do? We see throughout the New Testament what elders, pastors do, but it is re relatively silent when it comes to the other office, deacon. Although there are no prescriptive texts for the deacon role, we do have a descriptive text of what is understood to be the origin of the deacon office. It's in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. which says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So we see here the deacon's role is for the purpose of the unity of the church. Their aim is the unity in the church. And how do they promote this unity in the church? By serving the tangible needs of the church. They serve in this capacity to free the burdens of the elders so elders can focus on the ministry of the word. The deacons, for example, take care of the distribution of the needs for the poor and the widows, the benevolence ministry. They make sure buildings are working properly. The church lawn is cut. They take care of a lot of the legwork when it comes to organization of events, logistics, meals, and finances, things of that nature. The tangible needs, the physical needs of the church. Now, 
There are many who don't hold this office that are doing these things, true. And that's a good thing. But these are things in which we set aside deacons to take care of. That way, pastors, elders are not consuming their time with things and, ha- and having to neglect the word ministry of preaching, teaching, pastoral care, and discipleship. Now, does any of this interest you? Do you see yourself as a, fulfilling these deacon qualifications? Do you see yourself as one day maybe serving in a role like this? Or do you see someone who's already deaconing, if you will, and fits these qualifications? Well, you should let the, the elders know. Encourage that person to pursue it. The elders, they're looking, they look for people that fit these qualifications. And we should always be on the lookout for people like these. And if you desire to serve as a deacon, take an elder aside and ask for prayer and for counsel in this to see if this is where the, where the Lord is leading. The Lord Jesus is our master deacon, and if you serve as deacon, he is our model. He greatly loves deacons and will greatly bless them. So 1 Timothy 3 shows us that the church the household of God, is to be overseen by Christ-like men and served by Christ-like men and women. Church, if you notice someone who fulfills these qualifications and is already performing the tasks of an overseer without the title, they're shepherding already, teaching already, and they have aspiration for this, go talk to them about the possibility of being an elder. Not necessarily here, but somewhere. Pray for them. Encourage them. Tell the current elders about them. We should be constantly looking for uh, men and training up men to fulfill this office. Maybe you've considered for yourself full-time vocational ministry. You would like to serve one day as an elder in a church, but would also like to be one on a full-time basis. Well, let the elders know. Let the leadership know. But on all this, please know, you may aspire, but it is the church that calls you by the will of Christ. And if you're called to this office, the church will affirm it. Maybe you would love to serve the church in an official capacity, but you're more of a behind-the-scenes person. You love to step in and serve more so than to teach. Maybe God is calling you to be a deacon. We should be raising up folks that can fit in this official capacity, folks grounded in the Word, who exhibit these qualifications and already serving in some capacity. Maybe you see this, uh, characteristic in, uh, these characteristics in someone else. Either way, can, again, continue to let the leadership of the church know and, and encourage these, these, these folks to, uh, to pray about the possibility of serving in this capacity. For those who serve in these offices, this passage is quite humbling, isn't it? And it should be. It should be. I'm not adequate for these things. You are not adequate for these things. No one is adequate for these things. Only the God of grace can give you the grace to walk in these qualifications. It's not anything in us but the Holy Spirit who resides in us. So that's the challenge of today, to depend on his grace daily. But maybe you have no aspirations for these offices or can't serve in these roles currently. 
And there are no problems with that. There's no shame in that. It's God who calls. But also pray for your leaders. Pray for your church leaders. They daily need your prayers. And we are to follow their leadership. Think about the the deacons that we have. How can you help them? Always be on the lookout to assist them. Those who serve the tangible needs of the church always need extra hands. So with both of these offices, they mirror Christ. For the overseer, it's in Christ's humble and gentle teaching and care and oversight. For the deacon, it's Christ's diligent service. Again, all these things should be the characteristics of of all Christians in in a sense that we, we want to walk in these ways. But these offices must, must model it for the congregation. As Paul continually tells Timothy, tells the Thessalonians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We imitate those in these offices as they imitate Christ. And when we do, when they do, Christ is glorified and his gospel truth will go forward. Lord Jesus, you are a chief shepherd. You are our great servant. Help those who serve in these church offices to model Christ. Help us who who do, do not hold an office to imitate them as they imitate Christ. And we pray this all in Christ's holy and righteous name. Amen.